Welcome to another episode of the Phoenix Rising podcast, Journeys of Descending into the Mysteries and Rising from the Roots. I am your host, Lisa Hillier. And today I have Annabelle Duboulet on the show with me. And Annabelle is the founder of the Avalon Rose Chapel. She is a Rose Priestess of Avalon with over 30 years of embodied experience in academic research in the Rose and Celtic lineages including 22 years journeying on the Holy Isle of Avalon. She is an international teacher, speaker, and author of the Witch Burnings novel, The Serpent's Tale, and runs an extensive online and in-person events program, including the Avalon Rose Priestess and Practitioner Trainings with Pilgrimage to Avalon and Southern Italy, as well as a Rose Moon membership journeying with the Venus of the Venus Cycle. In today's episode, Annabelle and I dive into the magic and the medicine of the Holy Isle of Avalon, the sacred union, the sacred marriage, Heros Gamos, the Michael and Mary ley lines, the stone circles, the red and white springs, the myth of Sophia and Lilith, and all the magic and medicine of the goddess. Can't wait to sink in. Welcome to another episode on the Phoenix Rising podcast. And I am here with Annabelle and I can't wait to dive into all kinds of magic around Avalon. I seriously get goosebumps when I think about it. So welcome Annabelle. And to start, we're going to dive into the story that has led you to the magic, to the work that you're offering the planet today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Lisa. I'm really honored to be here. Um, So it's quite a long story, but it begins um, really in uh, southern Italy in the land of Black Madonna. And that was my initiation onto the Rose Path. I spent four incredible summers there living in this little rural village. And I became fascinated by the interplay between Catholicism and paganism. So um, mama would slit the throat of the kit of the chicken and she would offer the blood to the earth with a prayer to the Madonna. So it was this fascinating interplay between a very pagan way of life that was very in tune with mother nature and the cycles of the earth um, and with Gnosticism, with the Madonna and specifically with the Black Madonna. And then um, I spent time in Peru and I was working with orphans out there, but I was living in the house of a shaman and I traveled with him throughout Peru. And that was really my initiation onto the path of Pachamama and a more shamanic way um, of honoring the divine feminine in the land. Um, And then on my return to London, um, I went back to university and I did my master's and my PhD research. Uh, looking specifically at this. So I I contrasted what we call goddess theology with feminist theology. And that was really looking at this incredible millennia history of goddess paganism. And then looking specifically at that point of early Gnosticism, where uh, those true teachings of those early Gnostics are founded on this incredibly deep mythic tradition. 
and then looking at how in the fourth century the patriarchal church then began to manipulate and distort those original teachings ostensibly in order to control women in society um, and so that's what became my passion and I was still studying when I gave birth to my eldest daughter Sophia and I knew I needed to call Sophia um, and I had studied the goddess Sophia um, in my postgraduate studies, but I had not really fully embodied her mythos. And so the birth of Sophia was my initiation into a very, very deep lived embodied experience of the black goddess Sophia and of her mythos. So my daughter um, was born with a life-threatening syndrome. She had life-saving surgery at birth and then a further 12 operations. So she literally led me on the mythic descent of the soul and the ascent, the rebirth back into the light of greater strength and courage and wisdom and capacity for love and compassion. Um, I was then very blessed um, to have a healthy girl who was born on the original date of Beltane and is the living embodiment of the Fae, that magic of Beltane. And then I moved eventually to Glastonbury. I'd been, well, I'd been coming here for 22 years now. I had done my um, priestess training with the Glastonbury Goddess Temple and worked every year at the Glastonbury Goddess Conference. So I was deeply immersed in Avalon, but really holding the energies of the Rose and Celtic here on the Holy Isle. And then I eventually moved here 13 years ago. I was pregnant with my son. Um, I had just published my novel, The Serpent's Tale, which is a historical um, novel set at the time of the witch burnings in the village in Italy where I used to live. And it really deeply explores the myth of Sophia and the later Greco-Romano uh, myth of Demeter and Persephone that is ultimately inspired by um, the planet Venus and the early ancient Mesopotamian myth of Inanna. Um, and I gave a talk um, at the publication of my novel and I said how, you know, I had learned this philosophy of life um, and little knowing what lay ahead. And anyone who has spent time in Avalon will understand why it is called the Isle of the Dead, Transformation and Rebirth. It is not an easy place to visit or live in. It is incredibly powerful. It is the cauldron. And Avalon works on you by stripping away all the layers of internalized shadow behavior, um, really so that you can get stripped back to your core essence and then remember your true self and rebuild yourself back up. So I very naively at that point thought that we'd been through everything we had to go through. <laughs> um, but it was like I had thrown down a gauntlet to life. And three months later, my son was born with an even rarer life-threatening syndrome. So he was born unable to breathe, feed, speak, smile. And we spent a long time in intensive care. Um, and then we were actually trained by intensive care nurses and I was resuscitating him under emergency conditions several times a day for months. And in that period, I was probably my darkest night of the soul because to go through it a second time and to witness my children suffering through the trauma a second time was so hard. 
and I lost all my faith. I was raging at goddess. And um, I went through a very difficult 18 month period where I lost the ability to feel compassion. And that was really hard. I couldn't, I didn't recognize myself um, because I'd been working for the UK's largest mental health charity for many years, which required vast amounts of compassion. And so that was the point when I began to paint my healing room art installation, which was a literal nine month gestation. Um, and I painted four very large canvases of the mother of loss, Hecate, the mother of solitude, Lilith, the mother of healing, Bridget, and the mother of compassion, Kuan Yin. And I was working with my moon blood and with the fire, every lunation as well, as I painted and literally painted my way through my rage, my holy rage, my grief into the solitude that is an implicit part of those dark nights of the soul. However much comfort and support we're receiving from our loved ones, there is something about that dark night of the soul that involves a depth of solitude of aloneness, which is where we meet Lilith and it's where we discover our true self and our warrior self because we are the only ones who can rebirth ourselves out of that and go through that archetypal 40 days in the wilderness and come back stronger and then I was able to come back to a place of healing working very deeply with Bridget who's one of our family's main um, deities and then back to a place where I could feel compassion and then from that um, I was able to then birth uh, what was what was then the Glastonbury Gnostic Centre and Chapel but is now renamed the Avalon Rose Chapel um, and I grounded and rooted that in Avalon in Glastonbury as close to the original Chapel of Magdalene that was built by Joseph of Arimathea and his followers um, so that the energies of the chapel are rooted and grounded um, in that land where I truly believe that Magdalene and Mother Mary and the Holy Grail Sarah walked um, and were in devotion. Um, and now I'm incredibly blessed to live in the Avalon Rose Chapel, which is in one on one of the islands of the Great Lake of Avalon. It's actually on the Isle of the Dog um, that creates the gateway to Avalon to the other world. And it sits beneath the Dog Star Sirius. So it is a, a very, very powerful portal to Sirius. And Sirius is fundamental to the Rose lineage and, and to my work. Um, and so I now find myself in that incredibly blessed place of having come through uh, those 22 years of enormous uh, depth of challenge of constant life death of just living on that bridge between life and death um, and holding my children through immense trauma. Um, and I now find that we're at that point of the blessing, of the gift, of the light, of the gratitude, and now being in a position to use both the combination of my knowledge, but also our gnosis as a family to really help others, you know, to bring that light into the community, to help others to heal through their own dark night of the soul, to empower them, um, and ultimately 
to keep challenging patriarchal religion um, and to empower women who are still so deeply subjugated um, in many countries in the world. And I was just running my Rosemary membership webinar actually, and we're working with the throat chakra at the moment. And I just said, you know, those of us who, who are so privileged to live within relative freedom, it really is our duty to dig deep, to do our own healing, to find the strength of the inner warrior so that we can be the voice and keep campaigning on behalf of those women who are still suffering so much oppression. Yeah. Um, so that is my real sole purpose here, I think is, you know, is to share the teachings, but then also to campaign um, on behalf of others who are not so blessed by the freedom and privilege that we have. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. And those dark nights of the soul, they're so painful and terrifying there's but there's so much beauty in them usually mm -hmm. when we're on the other side and so those initiations i've never heard avalon spoke of that way like an isle of the the birth and the death and it so is like there's such destruction and excavation that takes place mm -hmm. to come back and to remember the truth and and reclaim the truth of who who we are and so just for anybody that's listening that's not deeply deeply familiar with avalon who is avalon to you and what is avalon to you the holy isle of avalon oh so avalon for me is the isle of death transformation and rebirth she she is the cauldron of transformation so I was called here on my daughter Sophia's first birthday uh, 22 years ago and I walked the land and there was a deep, deep sense of homecoming, of remembrance, of past life memories. I think many people who are drawn here have that remembering. You know, I know I was here as a priestess of Avalon at the time of the destruction of the temples and I know that much of the work I do here is uh, in service to healing that time. Um, and she, what I used to find is every time I'd come here, I couldn't sleep and a lot of people say the same thing. And what I began to realize is that that's one of her ways in which she energetically makes you incredibly vulnerable. So I'd have a sleepless night or I'd be really ill and then I'd have to go you know, to the priestess training or whatever, uh, circle I was attending with my sisters and because I was so exhausted I would be able to access that vulnerability in those shadow places in a much more profound way and that's what she does everyone describes it as a Glastonbury experience when you come here um, and there are a lot of people who come here and, you know, they, they have a real dark night of the soul because one of her main uh, energies is to take you into your shadow, to strip you bare and to empower you within her cauldron to come home to yourself through her through her energies, through her mythos, through her deities and guides in the land, um, so that you then by the end are reborn 
And I used to witness this in my children. Every year they've been coming to the Goddess Conference literally since they were born. Well, Soph was two and Jati since she was three months. Um, and I used to witness their transformation during that week. And they would arrive and they would be much more closed down. And by the end of that week, they would be walking up the high street barefoot with their little veils and shawls on and just so liberated. And they would have been on their own archetypal descent and ascent. I would have witnessed them and held that sacred container for them. Just as we do as adults, the children also go on the journey and something triggering for them or slightly traumatic for them would happen usually in the middle of that week. But by the end, they would have gone through the healing. The energies of Avalon would have just been working through them and on them. And then by the end, I just witnessed them in their true essence, completely liberated, empowered to a whole other level. And that for me is what Avalon does. That is Avalon. Yeah. Um, and I think being a guide and a priestess in service to Avalon, that is my intention every time I work with anyone, is to guide them on that journey of descent and ascent. The descent of Anana, the stripping back and peeling away and masks falling away. And it speaks so um, potently to the patriarchy and letting go of all the stuff that keeps us bound or, or separate from who we truly are. And when you spoke about, you know, the sleepless nights, that's a way to break you down and break you down. So you get to this raw vulnerability, authenticity, and that's when you meet who you truly are. How does Lilith, well, who is Lilith? Um, for listeners and how does she assist in I'll say the breaking down Lilith feels like a destructor a destroyer to me and so who is Lilith yeah. so I have a very deep journey with Lilith um, and so uh, it's all she also forms part of my Avalon Rose Priestess training she's one of the main five Gnostic goddesses we work with and so for me on that wheel she embodies the crone energy but she was, biblically, she was Adam's first wife and she refused to lie beneath him. And she went off into the wilderness on her own. So she became, um, for modern day feminists, this incredibly powerful symbol of the woman who refuses to be subjugated and who stands fully in her own power. She also has an incredibly strong sexual energy. So a lot of women work with her um, from a sexually liberated place. She's very empowering for them. I know a lot of victims, survivors of sexual abuse and violence have found her incredibly powerful to work with because it's about reclaiming your own sexuality and strength uh, from uh, suffering that trauma. But what, the ways in which I work with her is if you actually look back at her mythos, the core foundation of her mythos is to be found in ancient Mesopotamia, in ancient Sumeria, um, Lilithu. And, um, and when you look at her story, um, she, it is very entwined with the tree of life, with the owl of wisdom, who later becomes Sophia's owl of wisdom, with the serpent of wisdom, these are all her creatures. And she also, so her brother cuts down the tree of life, which is really the symbol of her. 
and her creatures fly off and slither away. And so she flees into the wilderness. And in this wilderness, she comes home to her own raw, wild power. And so that for me is the energies that I work with, with her. And so this, this archetype of 40 days in the wilderness that we see later in, in Christian mythos, is actually founded on 40 day retrograde period of Venus. And so the ancient Mesopotamians were the first culture to write down a mythos that was inspired by this movement of the planet Venus. So Lilith's 40 days in the wilderness within her mythos um, is, is that aspect of Venus and of Inanna Ishtar, the ancient Mesopotamian goddesses who were the embodiment of Venus it's that shadow aspect of them. So this is where light and darkness cannot be separate. This is the absolute fundamental uh, mythos and Gnostic myth that we see later in the Gnostic myth of Sophia, that darkness and light cannot be separated. So Lilith embodies that shadow warrior aspect of the lover goddess, who is both the goddess of love and of war. And it's only later when the patriarchal church comes in that they start to split light and darkness. And so um, they project all the light aspect of the ancient mother goddess onto mother Mary, who becomes sterile, pure, obedient. And they project all the shadow aspect of the warrior goddess um, onto Eve as the seductress, onto Lilith um, as the warrior, the rebel. Um, and, and that's when we start to get this split. And then all of that projection of the shadow in reality was then projected on, onto the wise women witches and was at the core of the witch burnings. So, so much of what we need to do as priestesses and women at this time is to bring the light and the shadow together back into union. And so working with Lilith and the other archetypes and deities of the black goddess is fundamental to our work and to who we are as women. You know, we really need to, not only on that personal level, work with our shadow, but we need to really harness and honor that warrior within. Um, and, and then of course we do it on behalf of the collective. And then that's when we come more fully into our power and are able to be that warrior wise woman fighting on behalf of others and against injustice. Yeah, it's those initiations that take us into the depths of darkness that allow that strength and resilience and even like a softness to emerge, you know, when we allow ourselves to experience um, that rawness and vulnerability and the descent and go into it as opposed to the conditioning that we might've received to numb it or avoid it or run the other way that going deep within allows that emergence of the warrior. Um, so with that, the serpent, that's another aspect that has been really shamed, deemed wrong. I was scared of snakes for most of my life, you know, just kind of like, Ooh, they're scary. The serpent energy is scary. It's, um, something to be feared. What is the serpent in? Yeah. Just what is the serpent? Okay. Truth? So the serpent is 
fundamental to my work. It's why it's why my book's called The Serpent's Tail. So the serpent is the original symbol of goddess wisdom. The serpent and then later Eve is the initiatrix. And uh, obviously it's always been a symbol for resurrection because it sheds its skin, but they also think because it resembles an umbilical cord. So it really came to embody this journey of descent and ascent of death and rebirth of the soul that we go on throughout our lifetime and then through lifetimes. So that is why the serpent is that symbol of wisdom because the wisdom is to be found in that mythic journey and that archetypal journey of descent and ascent. And so when um, I begin my Avalon Rose Priestess training in the Orchard of Avalon here, which I call the Rose Garden of Eden here, and we work with Eve as the initiatrix and we take the bite of the apple. And that is our initiation onto our path. And the serpent is our main primary guide on that journey because she is the one who is gonna lead us on that spiraling descent and ascent. Um, so she's very, very powerful. I have snake tattoos all over me. Um, so I work very deeply with her. And I, I often have clients who, who say I'm really scared of snakes. And for me, that's always an indication that she wants to initiate you. Yeah. 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 There's been a snake tattoo calling for a little while for me. I, I'm not scared of them any longer, but it's so symbolic of that fear the death you know, what the patriarchy has inflicted on us, fear the death, fear the serpent, fear the snake, all of that. But that, you know, shedding of the skin and the resurrection, that's what has to happen so that we can reclaim the truth that is within our, within our bones. So who are the other, um, ascended masters that you work with in your priestess training? So Lilith is one of them. Yeah, so on the priestess training, we work with five Gnostic goddesses to begin with. So we work with Eve, the maiden, Magdalene, the lover, Mary, the mother, Lilith, the crone, and then Sophia, wisdom. Um, and then in the second course of the Avalon Rose priestess training, we I literally track the Avalon Rose lineage. So we work with ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Judaism, ancient Egypt, ancient Greco-Romano, and then to the early Christian Gnostics who brought the Holy Grail and the teachings back here to Avalon, to Glastonbury. But what I find fascinating in the Avalon Rose lineage is that, of course, they actually had their origins are in the, with our Neolithic ancestors. So there's evidence here on the British Isles that what were thought to be burial tombs were actually uh, chambers that were created for the sacred marriage rite and the resurrection rites because they are aligned to the winter solstice rising of the sun king, the solar energy, the god energy, but they're also aligned to the heliacal rising of Venus, who of course embodies uh, the divine feminine energy. So when you have those both aligning at the same time within her cycle, you've got the most incredibly powerful energetics of the sacred marriage and the resurrection. Um, so we work with all the deities and guides from these different cultures. So we work with Inanna Ishtar and Asherah and 
Hokma, Sophia, and then we work with Isis and Nephetis um, and uh, the resurrection rites in Egypt. And then we work with Artemis Diana, Venus Aphrodite, um, Sophia, Demeter Persephone. Um, and then we work with Magdalene and Yeshua as the human embodiment of Sophia and the Christos. And I work very closely with Archangel Michael and Mary um, because I've lived on those dragon ley lines my entire life. And um, the dragon ley line of Archangel Michael actually literally runs straight through the Avalon Rose Chapel. So I'm sitting on it now um, as we're speaking. Um, so I work very deeply with the sacred marriage honoring both the divine masculine and divine feminine. So as we're working with these deities, we'll always be working with their consorts as well. So Inanna and Dumuzi, Ishtar and Tammuz, Isis and Osiris, you know, we're always working with that primary myth of the sacred marriage. And for me, that is absolutely essential to our co-creation of this new earth star, is the equal honoring of men and women. And I know I'm speaking in very gender specific terms now. And as I'm saying that, that is completely inclusive um, of everyone, no matter what gender um, they choose to assign themselves to or not at all. It's more an energy rather than you know gender specific. It's this belief that everyone has within them, these masculine and feminine aspects that need to come into balance, into divine union within them um, in order to give birth to their divine magical child self once more, that kind of aspect of themselves that is, that is the embodiment of the rebirth and the renewal. And so if we extrapolate that from the individual experience into the collective, then that is what I feel really needs to happen is this honoring of both the masculine qualities and the feminine qualities within society and how they come into divine union. Um, I feel that um, at the moment, uh, there's a lot of feeling that men or some men, obviously I don't want to generalize all men, but some men are feeling quite lost in their role, especially in response to the feminist movement, the Me Too movement. It's like, how can they be in their power, but not, not having power over? And I think that's a big, big responsibility for us women, actually, to work with them in that, to find, you know, to empower them to discover their role and how we can come together and work together because we are only going to overthrow the patriarchy and create this new world order by coming together as healthy uh, individuals um, and honoring the different ways in which we work and embody because we are different you know? yeah. so I really feel that's essential to, to our work at the moment yeah, it's that reclamation of the dark, the light, the masculine, the feminine, all facets that are within us, whichever role or, or gender or non-gender that we ad identify with. And I think that's so important that men feel um, that space for them to rise as well. We can't do it separate of them. It's like Mary Magdalene and Yeshua. We all rise together and it's so beautiful and potent. And we really need those hero warriors. You know, we really need them. They need to be the ones 
to really, you know, lead the way um, in, in that fight. So it's like, I feel like there's a real calling to them to rise up, to remember. And, and of course, we see that in the myth of the resurrection rites, which are just coming up. That's what the goddess does. And that's what Isis does, which, you know, the resurrection rites are based on, is she is the one who dives into the deep and she gathers the 13 scattered parts of Osiris, her king, and she remembers him and puts him back together and brings him back into that empowered state. And, and so I feel that archetypally, that's what, that's what we need to be doing. Yeah. You know, we yeah. need to be empowering to remember themselves as that hero warrior and that they have an incredibly important uh, part to play uh, in the world at the moment. It gave me goosebumps. <laughs> With Mary Magdalene and Yeshua and the patriarchy and the story of Mary Magdalene and how she was deemed and shamed and, and all of that separate from Yeshua as this healer, this rebel on the planet. What comes forward for you with the, the, the sex magic that was experienced between Mary Magdalene and Yeshua, like her, her holy grail, her womb space that allowed like the union of the two was what allowed him to walk this planet, her to walk this planet as these healers and um, yeah, mm. just mm. magical humans on the planet. Yeah, absolutely. So I think with, with all the research and then the embodied experience that I've done, I truly believe that they were priests and priestess uh, of the temples of Ishtar, of that tradition and that she was most likely a sacred sexual priestess within that tradition because they were. And one of the things we work with on the priestess training is uh, obviously the later patriarchal religious um, belief around this is that she uh, was, was working or he was healing her of the seven sins, the seven deadly sins. Seven, is that incredibly powerful number that obviously is inspired by the lunar cycle, the Venusian cycle, and then comes to, into form within the myth of Inanna. So we have the seven gates of descent, the seven waning moon conjunctions, Venus conjunctions, and then we have the seven gates of ascent with the waxing moon Venus conjunctions. And then we see this later embodied in the labyrinth where you cycle the seven levels and then back up again. So if they were working with seven supposed sins, they were not working with sins. They were working with these seven gates of initiation. So that tells me that she was his guide on that journey of descent and ascent, that she was his initiatrix. And then when we come to the anointing, now that was a traditional ritual in the ancient temples where the high priestess would anoint the head of the king. But of course, what we know that meant was that she would perform the sacred marriage rite with him. So she was anointing the head of his phallus mm. um, before 
he was uh, ritually sacrificed, for example, or later on they would have used bulls um, instead of an actual human sacrifice. And so this mythos, um, this story with Magdalene and Yeshua, if you, if you know the pagan background behind it, you can see all the signs um, of this mythos coming through where she's anointing him, i.e. they are performing the sacred marriage rite before his death. Um, and so I think, you know, this is, this is what I love to do. I love to peel back the layers of patriarchal distortion and get to the origin of these stories. Um, and so I absolutely believe that they were working together as the human embodiment of Sophia and the Christos. I believe they were incredible avatars who contracted to come into physical embodied form and through their holy marriage, their sacred marriage, uh, they not only share these teachings, brought immense healing into the world, but they created the holy bloodline, um, uh, which was embodied, you know, obviously in Sarah, but then I believe they had more children. So I spend a lot of time on the Isles of Mal and Iona uh, in the Hebrides, which many people associate just with Bridget Bridie, the Celtic goddess, but actually they're the, they're the um, Isles of the Holy Bride, they're the Isles of Magdalene. Um, so there is so much evidence to suggest not only that she fled there with Sarah and her children, um, but that she was potentially even born there and that she was actually a Celtic Druidic priestess who Yeshua met when he was brought over here by his godfather, um, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very wealthy merchant. He used to come to Somerset and to Glastonbury um, to buy tin from the mines here. So there's a lot of evidence that he would have brought Yeshua on one of those trips and that potentially he met Magdalene here and took her back to the Holy Land. So it would be, you know, it's very, very interesting looking at all the different kind of myths and evidence and trying to weave it all together. Um, but ultimately, they were the embodiment of the sacred marriage and what can be achieved through that. And I think that goes back to what I was just saying, you know, about what needs to happen now. And I do feel is, um, that this time, especially that we've had with this prolonged Venus-Mars conjunction, is that the twin flames are being brought together. The high priestesses and the warriors, the hero warriors are being brought together um, to be able to do this incredibly powerful work, but from the place of the sacred marriage, yeah. where the differences are completely honored. You know, where the, where the man's role is to hold and protect that sacred container in which the woman, the priestess, can work her magic. And I feel that that was what they embodied. Twin flames. Yeah. Who are the twin flames for you? For, for me personally, 
Yeah. When you're, you know, there's so many different theories on twin flames and that it's one soul that's split into two, or there's many twin flames for each of us. It's an energy. It's a role. There's just so many different layers to the twin flame path. So what stands Mm -hmm. out the most for you with the twin Mm -hmm. flame path? So I think, I think that as souls, we contract in the interlife before we we incarnate and we contract, uh, come together with different souls within different dynamics and different relationships as part of our soul's journey. Um, but from my own experience, I think there comes a point in life where you're ready, where you've done all the work. And that's not to say there's not more work to do, but you're at a point where you're ready for your twin flame to come back to you. And I do think a twin flame is a very deep past life experience. I think you've probably had many lifetimes before together, because when you do come together with them, it is as if you've known them all your life, well, for lifetimes. And I think when you come together, you just know because there is that sense of deep knowing. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the easiest of relationships because I don't think they're meant to be. I think once you are in an empowered state enough for your twin flame to come in, then they're going to be in a very empowered state too. And so when you have two alphas coming together, and that can be quite exciting <laughs> energetically. <laughs> but I think, it, you know, it's meant to be because um, you're not only meant to come together in that incredible um, power dynamic of what you can achieve together through that co-creation, through that mutual honoring and depth of love and respect. But there's also, I think, an intrinsic part of the twin flame relationship is that you do trigger each other because you need to go to those depths together. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, it is an extrapolation of what you do within your own individual psyche. You know, you do that shallow work on yourself, but there's only, there is a limit to how much you can work with your shadow on your own. You know, the most powerful way to work with our shadow is in relationship and not necessarily sexual love relationship, but how we relate to others and how they relate to us and how we deal with our triggers and our projections and how we become more conscious of those and the power plays, you know, the power struggles. And of course, as we're doing that individually in relationships, we're doing it for the collective because that's what needs to happen collectively. We need to change the way we relate to each other and and the power plays at work and the dynamics. So I think they're incredibly powerful relationships. Do I think there's only one? Um, I think in each lifetime, yes. But there may be more than one twin flame that you come, you know, you come back to over lifetimes. But I don't don't think there's enough energetic space in one lifetime to be with more than one. Yes, I would have to agree. I'd have to agree with that. And the the deep in my experience um, with the twin flame, it has created the deepest excavation and initiation I've ever experienced. The shadows all came yeah, to the surface. So absolutely. 
yeah. powerful and painful and yeah. all of it. <laughs> yes. I call it radical honesty. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. 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 Not for absolutely. the faint of heart. <laughs> no, absolutely not. It's really, you know, them having that warrior strength to just hold up the mirror. Mm. When you're a very empowered woman, it takes a very strong man to be able to do that. Or, yeah. yeah. Partner. Not necessarily yeah. man, but partner. Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, we need it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Keep growing. Yes. And evolving on this magical planet. So with the um with Magdalene and Yeshua, there's the red and white springs in Glastonbury. And there is myth around the red spring and the white spring kind of being that union of the the masculine and the feminine so what yeah. is the myth and you know with yeshua's blood yeah. being in the red springs what is that myth yeah so um so they are called well but they're the white and red dragon serpent waters of, of avalon and they have their core deep within the tour and then they weave through the land so they're creating this archetypal sacred marriage of the red and the white and the white spring is the most holy place and there's the most incredible um, altar to the god there and and it does feel there's a very deep divine masculine energy there I, I love to take my son there and he always comes out strutting like really empowered in his divine masculine self and then that is right next to where the red spring or the blood spring bubbles up, which really holds this intensely feminine energy. Um, and that's at Chalice Well. So we work very deeply um, in my priestess training or my pilgrimages with the sacred marriage between the red or the blood spring and the white spring. And so in the later Glastonbury Gnostic mythos, there is the belief that Joseph of Arimathea wrought uh, the Holy Grail, but also the two cups, the two chalices that contained the sweat and the blood of Christ from the cross, um, and that they are connected to the red and the white springs. So this really is about the sacred marriage and, and it's embodied in the Michael and Mary dragon ley lines that also weave their way through that land and they cross at certain points and on those node points where they cross is this incredibly powerful energetic of the sacred marriage so they cross in the abbey in Glastonbury abbey and then they they weave their way uh, through what was the lake of Avalon and then they cross once more again at Borough Mump, which is just near where the Avalon Rose Chapel is. So these dragon lines are incredibly important uh, in, in the UK, in the British Isles, especially the Mary Michael Ley line. Um, but then, of course, they connect to all these other very powerful ley lines that then spread across the world and, and have this amazing alignment with other other sacred sites from the ancient cultures especially in relation to the rose lineage and so part of the deep work that i do um, as a priestess on my own it's on private pilgrimage working with these earth grids and these um, dragon ley lines and especially with uh, the michael mary ley lines and you know the blood 
uh, red spring and white spring and this archetypal sacred marriage, which is at the core mythos of the Aboriginal lineage. Yeah, and you have a pilgrimage coming up. Yes, that, I yes. do. Yeah, I have the Avalon Rose Chapel Mary Michael pilgrimage uh, to Glastonbury Avalon and the Summerlands, and that's when I'll be guiding um, a group on pilgrimage, very very deep journey to all the sacred sites, um, but specifically working with the Michael and Mary ley lines and their energies and and this concept of the sacred marriage within the soul, um, whilst really uh, dropping into the sacred container that is Avalon and is the Summerlands. Because when you go on pilgrimage here, it is never just a traveling experience. It is a pilgrimage <laughs> of, of the archetypal descent and ascent. It is a full initiation. And it's something that I'm so excited about because I've been coming and creating personal pilgrimage here for 22 years. And obviously I live here. So it is an enormous honor to be able to guide and facilitate people's own journeys into Avalon and the Summerlands and the deities and the mythos and archetypes um, and land. The land is just so ancient and so sacred and working with these dragon energies is just life transforming. Yeah, yeah, so powerful. The lands are so powerful and they just heal in themselves there's nothing that you need to do she guides you in an instant into the descent and ascent for sure how do the dragons um you know they're the ally of the priestess the dragons does anything come up for you of who the dragons are what the dragon ley lines are um where are the dragons are they with us now so I was born and raised on the Mary Ley Lines. So that was really my initiation into the dragon energies. Um, and that land where I grew up is so ancient and so sacred. So I began walking the land at such a young age and then became consciously aware of the dragon energy, probably when I was doing my priestess training. So 22 years ago. And that's when I began, began to really consciously walk those dragon lines and start to work with the dragon energy. And then later, I studied dragon energy as part of the Avalon Rose lineage. So that's when I began working with the myth of Tiamat um, in ancient Babylon. And so this is the, this is the point where for the first time, the mother goddess is defeated by the god, by her son. So the dragon goddess Tiamat is defeated by Marduk. And that is when we get this ancient symbol of the spear going through the dragon. So we see it later in Archangel Michael. And what that really was is the symbol of the patriarchy starting to tame the wild, primitive, primal, uncontrollable energies, not only of the goddess and of the earth, but of women. And so for me, working with dragon energy is about reclaiming that aspect, reclaiming the primal essence of mother nature, who is all powerful. 
and reclaiming that aspect in us. And that's where, you know, Lilith really comes in as well. It is that very, very deep, primal, untamable part of us. It's a very Artemis energy as well, although she carries a bit more of a maiden energy. But it is that, that part of us that just runs wild and free, is beholden to no one but herself. It's the real virgin huntress energy, um, but deeply rooted in the land. That's where the dragon energy is. It's so deeply rooted in the land and in your own uh, unique communion with that land and with those energies. Mm. So it's a very personal experience I feel with the dragons. Yeah. And um, I have a rose dragon who came to me when I was at Roslyn Chapel and she is so powerful. And I find at any point in my life where I'm feeling unsure, I'm allowing fear to take control um, or I'm allowing that voice within my throat chakra to be repressed through all those fears we carry. She'll appear to me and she'll just literally breathe fire at me. And it's like, and I just feel this intense heat and energy going into my solar plexus and into my womb, my sacral chakra. And it's like, she's just like reminding me of my fire, of my inner fire, of that inner warrior. And that, and that inner warrior is grounded and rooted in communion with the land, with the earth and with the dragons. So that's why I walk every day without fail. That's how I connect and stay rooted and grounded in that primal energy that is our core, our core essence, our core strength um, and, and empowerment, yeah. I remember a Reiki session that I was having with one of my Avalonian soul sisters and there was a dragon asleep in my womb space. And I feel like the dragon within all of us is, is waking up within the, the goddess. Like she's literally waking up her priestesses and, you know, speak, speak your truth. Does anything come to mind for, for you with, with women and, you know, stemming from the witch hunts? Our voice, right? It, it can be challenging for us to use our voice to speak our truth, to um, speak our desires, just to let it out. What is what are some tangible ways to start, or, or a goddess to work with? Would it be Lilith to start to reclaim the voice and open up the th throat mm -hmm. chakra? So it's like hearing yourself roar, letting your dragon roar. Yeah, yeah, and this is such important work. I mean, I was just actually talking about this in my rosemary membership webinar because we were working specifically with the throat chakra at the moment and so much of women's past wounding in the collective is lodged in our throat chakras I mean so many of us on this path have issues with our throat like I cannot stand my throat being touched like I can't even stand my children touching it and I know that's because I've just repeatedly strangled or you know held against a pyre and burnt as a witch and you know so many of us have this deep deep millennia of collective unconscious memories of being tortured and killed and subjugated as women and so much of that energy is lodged in our throat 
I had to really work hard with this before I published The Serpent's Tale, which is a witch burnings novel. And when I was writing that, I had to do a lot of research. Uh, obviously, I had to become an expert on the Inquisition. And part of that was researching the torture, which actually used to make me feel physically sick. And I chose sort of the most palatable, you know, forms of torture I could put in this book because I couldn't put, you know, the really extreme forms. It would have just been too horrific. And I had to work so deeply through a completely irrational fear that if I published that novel, I was going to get kidnapped and the same torture was going to get inflicted on me and my children. And it was a really tangible fear. And this is a fear that I think so many of us, you know, some people call it the witch wound, have to work through in order to find our strength and courage to stand up and speak. And it's absolutely essential. Our voice is how we express our soul, it's how we express our soul gifts, it's how we fight on behalf of others, it's how we voice our no and our yes, it's absolutely fundamental that we do this work on the individual level and then for the collective and especially on behalf of those women who are still silenced and who don't even have the option to use their voice. Um, so ways in which to work with it I think just really dropping into the throat chakra. I mean, I, I'm a transpersonal therapist, so I work constantly through guided journey, through working with those archetypal voices in my unconscious. Um, and just actually ask your throat chakra. You know, you can drop into a meditation. You can call to your throat chakra. You can invite in any aspects of yourself that need to speak to you, that need to share with you any fear they have, any past life memories they have. And then at that point, you can call the healing energy in. So call in um, from whatever deities or guides you believe in, call that energy in and visualize it coming into your throat chakra. And as a transpersonal therapist, what I will always say is, first of all, see what symbol there is in your throat chakra right now with all that shadow, with all those blocks and fear and terror and past life memories. And often it will be like black smoke or something that really symbolizes a blockage. And then I'll say, you know, call in that light, visualize that light. You can have your own hands on your throat chakra, channeling the healing energy in. And then watch what that symbol transforms into because it will transform. And usually it will transform into something really light and empowering a really empowering symbol and that's when you know that you're energetically making a shift uh, within the throat chakra um, so that's like an energetic transpersonal technique you can use um, and then also just expressing 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 so giving yourself the opportunity to practice expressing whether it's through the written word or the oral word and what I find is the more you dare, the more that you feel the fear and you do it anyway, it's that classic cliche, but the more that you do that, the more experience you gain, the more confidence you gain, the more you are able to completely and utterly open trust and surrender that actually it's not your voice. 
it's her voice coming through you. So before I go on stage and give any of my talks, I'll drop into a really deep meditation. And I always have my mantra and there's my daily mantra. You know, I offer myself as a vessel for your divine love, wisdom and compassion to flow through me for the good of all beings and for the earth. And, and that's when you release the ego, because it's the ego who's trying to protect us. You know, the ego's job is to protect us and keep us safe. So it's the ego that manifests all these fears. Um, but if we drop out of the ego, and we drop into the soul, and we open and offer ourselves as a vessel in service to the greater good, then we access a power way greater than ourselves and we become a vessel for that to flow through us mm -hmm. and in any ways in which we create and express ourselves it is in co-creation with the divine by necessity so i think i think that is a really powerful way is is to remember that it's not just you mm -hmm. you everything you're doing is in relationship with the divine yeah. and it's yeah. only an ego that is trying to protect us with fear. Yeah. Yeah. So keeping us separate and that leaning into the fear and allowing it to the goddess to work with you feels that unification. You know, the, the fear is there, the ego is there. It's okay. I hear you. I see you, but I'm going to lean into this. And when you speak to walking on the land, it's like it roots us and grounds us and anchors us where we're speaking more from the soles of our feet. And that's where the goddess is speaking through us. You know, we're out of our mind, we're more in our body and that's where we can just open up and birth. What is truth for us? Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So with the symbolism, the vesica Pisces just dropped in. And so what is the symbolism of the vesica Pisces? Okay, so the Vesica Pisces is two circles and they overlap in the middle and they form the Yonic Gateway. Mm -hmm. So um, what they are is the symbol of the divine masculine energies coming together in the sacred marriage with the divine feminine energies. And we can see that within our mind, with our left brain and our right brain as well. And then it's through that inner sacred marriage of those two circles coming together that we create that yonic gateway through which we give birth to our divine magical child self once more. Um, and so that, that is what the Vesica Pisces symbolizes and it's used deeply at Chalice Well with the blood spring. It's a very, very powerful way in which to work, especially when I'm working with the crown chakra and the third eye chakra, I use that technique, that guided journey a lot. Um, where you're visualizing a figure of eight or those two circles overlapping um, as a way of bringing the left and the right brain, the masculine and the feminine part of us into divine union um, so that we can see through our third eye, through that unit gateway. That's a very powerful technique through which to access your guides and the, and the divine and source, but then also give birth to that inspiration, that creative spark that is gonna guide you on the next state of your creative journey. So it's like the full card in the tarot really, it's what you're giving birth to at that point. Mm -hmm. You're going from that, that point of 
you know, the wheel of fortune and that symbol of the Ouroboros and the, you know, the snake, the serpent eating its own tail. And from, it's from that state of wholeness, of divine union, that you're the, you then give birth to that full aspect of you, who is that incredibly liberated divine magical child self, whose only goal is to follow their innate guidance on their creative path. And that is our goal. I love that. And you spoke to the Yoni being part of the symbolism with the Vesca Pisces. And I believe that the tour as well, when you take an aerial view of the tour, it is the shape of the Yoni. And that's been something that's been so demonized by the patriarchy. And it's so that reclamation of our sacred, holy portal. Yes, absolutely. And of the blood, the reclamation of the blood. I like, I work so deeply with my moon blood especially on pilgrimage, like, you know, I create earth grids, working with the dragon lines and with my moon blood offerings. And it's just so important that we could reclaim everything to do with the yoni, with our blood. And if you don't believe them, I always say you can use pomegranate juice. They really hold the same energetics of fertility and resurrection. Um, but yeah, it's just everything that the patriarchal church demonized uh, is up for us to reclaim and to find the power, you know, within our sexuality, within our bodies, within our blood, because that is the source of our power. Yes. Yeah. And what is the medicine, the energy of the, the tour and the labyrinth that moves around it and weaves around it? What is the tour a portal to? What it, it is, for me, it is the gateway to the other world. So the mythos um, is the, at the egg stone, that it is a gateway uh, down into the other world. And, um, and it truly is, it is a labyrinth. So those seven levels take you down into the, in, the physically in the landscape, take you down into um, the labyrinth, but also, um, you know, the mythos, takes you down those seven layers so and then you've got the tower of archangel michael you've got the you know most incredible amount of ley lines coalescing that um so it is it is incredibly powerful it's interesting though i actually prefer walking for example on bar mum the energy is much purer uh, out here and that's why I like living out here um, because and we really noticed it during the pandemic when people weren't visiting Glastonbury and my daughters and I were walking up the tour every day um, that the the energy became much much purer um, because there were less people coming and having their Glastonbury experience <laughs> and projecting <laughs> a lot of shadow into the energetic environment, which is fine because that's, you know, that's, that's Avalon's, you know, role that she plays energetically. Um, so although there is immense power within the tour, actually I prefer to walk and work with the land surrounding the tour that's wilder, mm -hmm. that's, that's less um 
Yes, less energetically affected by the amount of people that go there, I think, is, you know, yeah. what I feel. Less unknown. It's more yeah. wild and untouched yeah. and just that yeah. authentic truth yeah. resides. Do the does Stonehenge and Avebury, do they tie into the Michael and Mary Ley lines or is that completely separate? Avebury does. Avebury does. So the Michael and Mary Ley lines do this incredible serpentine dance there and 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 meet there so that's a fundamental part of my Mary Michael pilgrimage we have a whole day at Avebury with one of my amazing best mates Laura Danigan Redwich um and she's a real expert in Avebury so yeah that's just the most incredibly powerful portal I think from all the kind of history that I've read in the archaeology that that was a major center for the sacred marriage rite and I, what I've seen is that the men would come down one serpentine line and the women would come down the other, and then they meet in the center, not only energetically within the dragon lines, but I think they met to create that sacred marriage, right? I think that's why it was built. Beautiful. And does anything come to mind for you of, you know, your own inner belief of how the stones arrived there? Um, oh, it's a tricky one because it's the same with Stonehenge, you know, um, which, you know, they, the Prezelli stones come from the Prezelli mountains and they just can't, you know, it's so hard to even imagine how they took the stones there. Um, I think, I think our ancestors were far more, um, progressive than we give them credit for mm. you know I think a lot of the archaeology is being led um, by patriarchal men <laughs> and interpreted in ways that female archaeologists like Maria Gimbutas would unravel and come to a different opinion and I think, as, you, know, you know, you can see this in the more modern day interpretation of what would just deem burial mounds. And now it's looking much more likely that they were initiation rites, you know, chambers of resurrection. And that actually um, places like Mass Howe, I might pronounce that wrong, but up in Scotland, um, were actually centres for the Magi, for the astrologers. Um, so I think they were a lot more advanced than we give them credit for, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure they had their their advanced ways of they getting their ways there. Yeah, <laughs> and you think about the pyramids and the stone circles, it's like something. Yeah. Yeah. There was something going on there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So powerful, and so because we've spoken so much about the sacred marriage in this beautiful conversation, and the next you know, festival that's coming up or cross quarter festival is Beltane. Mm -hmm. Could you just touch on what is, what is Beltane? Oh, Beltane is one of my favorites. So my daughter was actually born on the ancient date of Beltane in Helston, which is still celebrated, which is the 8th of May, but traditionally we celebrate it on the 1st of May. And here in Glastonbury, we have a huge community 
Beltane celebration, which is just wonderful. And, you know, they, they dig a big hole in Mother Earth and then the men carry the tree in and they plant the tree, which of course is the symbol of the divine union um, between the masculine and the feminine earth. So you've got the phallic pole of the masculine uh, divine energy and then Mother Earth as, as the yonic, the womb receiving this phallus. Um, and then that of course becomes the maple. And that's our later tradition um, where we dance around the maple and we typically weave red and white ribbons together as the embodiment of the sacred marriage. Um, so it is a time on, on our wheel where we celebrate the sacred marriage. Uh, hand fastings would have typically been held at Beltane. Uh, we honor the goddess and God within their sacred marriage and within ourselves. It's also deeply associated with the Fae, mm. Shining Ones, and it's a time when the veils really thin between this world and the other world. Um, it's a time for celebration, uh, for the burning of fires, and the beacon fires would always have been lit so that you could have seen them across the land on all the beacon hills. Um, cattle traditionally were run through um, in the gap between the Beltane fires, um, and Beltane fires were lit within the fields, and these were all um, traditional agricultural and farming rituals that were about ensuring the fertility of the animals and of the crops and the land and the fertility of human relationships. So this is the festival of, of fertility and of sexuality and sensuality. And one of the Celtic goddesses that we revere at this time is Rhiannon. And she is that embodiment of raw sexuality, sensuality, the seductress, but in that really embodied state, not in the patriarchal, you know, Eve the seductress, um, but in that true dropping into the power of your body, of your yoni, of your blood, and being in your full embodied sexual self. And that's, yeah, it's a celebration of that, that is because it's so evident within nature at that time. And um, you know, with the hawthorn blossom that smells uh, very similar to woman's yoni, and you know, there's it's just you know the the whole of nature is alive with that pulsating sexuality and and fertility, and so it's it's a huge festival and celebration of that. Yeah, and the sacred marriage and coming together of the feminine, and the masculine, and there's myth that they would come together for a year and a day. Is that yes. correct? And then decide exactly. if they wanted to, yeah. to stay yeah. together or part ways. But yeah, that union yeah. and marriage yeah. of the that two. was the traditional hand fasting they would do for a year and a day before they decided to commit to being married. Mm, so beautiful. What has been your biggest lesson along the way? I think through my experience with my children, who have been my greatest teachers, um, I think we became the living embodiment of the myth of Sophia. So my greatest, greatest lesson I have learned that it is within the deepest, darkest nights of the soul that we find her light of wisdom and that we are reborn 
back into a greater depth of strength, of courage, of capacity to love and feel compassion. Um, and that that is our journey of empowerment and of coming home to ourselves, to our true essence. And so I think, I think the greatest lesson in that is that when you are in that dark night of the soul, is to try to trust and surrender mm. that at some point you will be reborn back into the light yeah. and to hold on to that to hold on to that however dark it seems because you will be reborn you will rise again mm. do you want to just touch on the myth of sophia for everybody listening the yeah yeah so the gnostic myth of sophia is this much later a mythos that is founded on this millennia, uh, dating back to ancient Mesopotamia and the myth of, of the descent and ascent of banana. And then we see it with um, Demetra and Persephone, for example. So the Gnostic myth of Sophia is that she begins in the Pleroma with her brother, bridegroom Christ, and then she falls from this state of grace. And that is uh, a reflection of our, basically it's when we prick our finger on the spinning wheel of life, we choose to, our soul chooses to incarnate uh, onto this earth walk. And typically we experience some trauma within our childhood that our soul is contracted to experience. And it doesn't necessarily need to be some huge trauma, you know, but everyone will have some experience that sets them on their journey. And this is what happens with Sophia. So she falls from this state of union with source, with her soul. And she is typically, as, as happens in, in the mythos, will be described as a prostitute or destitute, roaming the streets. But she's really a metaphor for our ego, our egoic journey through the challenges of life. And her whole goal is to return to the Pleroma in divine union with Christ. And that is a metaphor for our own soul's journey, that our destiny is to return to the Rose Garden of Eden, to return to the interlife and to be reunited fully with our soul and with source, however we view the divine and experience it. And so Christ, her brother, saves her and restores her to the Pleroma in the sacred marriage with him. But it's not uh, the later patriarchal spin on this, which we see in the fairy tales, where the prince rescues the damsel in distress because Christ is an aspect of her so it is her own soul that he's embodying who rescues her ego so that's really what's going on on a deep archetypal level is that part of us that even when we incarnate remains in the pleroma remains completely connected to source that aspect of our soul is the part of us that restores us back to wholeness at the end of our lifetime. 
Um, and so that is the Gnostic method, Sophia. Beautiful. That's so beautiful. And your children have been such a huge part of your descent, your, your descent into the darkness and your rise. And there's a story that you've shared with me through email about how the Sirius and your children, do you want to share that story of synchronicity? Yes. That was incredible. So when Sophia was three months old, she had her second surgery, which is a five hour surgery. And she was screaming in agony and I was cradling her. And it was at that point that I was just praying to any energy or deity that would listen to, you know, to heal her, to stop her pain. And that was the first time I ever experienced healing energy. And I got this massive surge of healing energy come through my hands. And she went from screaming to silent in a second. And that was the point where I had this incredible out-of-body experience. And our souls were taken to this place that I was told was serious, but I didn't consciously know there was even a star called Sirius. And then these light beings appeared and they had these scoured beetles and they opened them and they were filled with honey and they poured them into our mouths and I could just see all this golden healing liquid flowing throughout our bodies and then the next moment I was back in my body in intensive care and my daughter was asleep in my arms and it wasn't until I got back home from intensive care that I began to pull all my books off my shelves and I began to weave all of this together and realized that I had had an out-of-body experience and had been taken to Sirius and that was my initiation into working with Sirius and I believe that um, I and my children are from Sirius that we are Syrian souls and that our mission is to come to earth at this time um, and to work with the energies of Sirius and to hold this sacred gateway this portal to Sirius um and um then in 2007 on november the 26th i ascended up to mount sinai for the first time and mount sinai is my soul's home and that is the cradle of the rose lineage for me and it's deeply connected to sirius and two years later i gave birth to my son and he was in intensive care and I popped home to get a journal and I just picked up a journal and it had a picture of a mama horse and a baby horse on it and we're both Sagittarians we're only four days apart and I took it back to intensive care and I opened it to start journaling and there was only one entry and it was my entry after I had been up Mount Sinai and I looked at the date and the time and it was the exact date and time of my son's birth two years later. And it was the only entry in that journal. And that's when I began to really realize the significance of our, our whole journey as a family with Sirius, but then also specifically my son, because he is a very, very ancient Syrian soul who has come in through a very disabled body, um, who I have witnessed have the most 
incredible effect on anyone who comes into contact with him. And so I feel incredibly sorry. I feel incredibly honored that his soul chose me to be his mother. And I know that he's here to do such deep work and especially um, working with Sirius. So I think when you open and become aware of the synchronicities that are playing out in your life and between the people you love, you can start to see the pattern that as souls you contracted to play out together. And then you get much deeper clarity on what your soul mission is and why you're here. Like I know without a shadow of a doubt that the last two years, 22 years of intense trauma that we have journeyed through as a family happened for a reason because we had contracted to experience it so we could reach the depth of emotional intelligence and gnosis that we have that we can then stand in our power and be a guide for others and a voice for others and use that combined knowledge and gnosis to help others to heal and become empowered and recognize the incredible light of their soul is shining deep inside them. And that every single person here on this earth is so special and so unique and has such an incredible light and soul gift to share with the world. And so that, that's what we feel. We feel that our souls chose to make that sacrifice to experience that trauma so that we could find that light of Sophia deep within us and bring it out more visibly in the world to help guide others. So powerful. So, so powerful. Thank you for sharing that beautiful synchronistic story. And is there a link with Sirius and where you're living now? Yes. And so the Avalon Rose Chapel where we live, which is our family home, is on the Isle of the Dog uh, in, with, within the Glastonbury Zodiac and is literally situated beneath Dog Star Sirius. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and there were so many synchronicities that led me to purchase this property. And I believe absolutely that it is a portal gateway to Sirius and I work very deeply with Sirius in my work so and I feel that Zach is here for a reason he's here guarding that gateway to that portal and and acting as a channel for that incredibly powerful healing energy and wisdom energy to flow through him and through this chapel so I feel deeply honored to be guardian of this sacred container uh, of the chapel and for him and my daughters. Beautiful. How do you experience the mysteries? Oh, so I experience the mysteries in a deeply individual way, primarily. So I walk the land every day. I work with my blood, I work with offerings, I work with the you. So I experience the mysteries on that daily mundane level because that's where they're to be found. 
walking the earth, listening to the birds, watching how the animals communicate with you, the trees. Um, and it's by doing that that I am able to release my any egoic fears or stress or anxiety or um, projections and then open to my soul, to source, to all my guides, my deities I work with and just experience the sublime in that way. And then I can bring it through and ground it into my body um, by the time I return home. And then that is my, my grounding and my strong foundation and my root chakra from which my creativity and my spirituality in my sacral chakra can then flow. So that's how I experience the mysteries on a very pragmatic, mundane, daily level in my life. And then I experience them deeply through ritual, through ceremony. I'm so blessed by the women and men I know and have known for decades now. And when we come together in ceremony and ritual, especially at things like the Glastonbury Goddess Conference, I absolutely adore. I've worked there every year for 22 years now and I'm a ceremonialist again this year and um, that is the most unique opportunity to be in deep ceremony and ritual um, with other sisters and brothers on the same path and together you co-create a magic that is beyond what you can create on your own you know the synergy that happens when you come together and you offer yourselves as channels, as vessels, en masse, uh, is so potent. So I love experiencing the mysteries through ritual and ceremony as well, as well as being on personal private pilgrimage. Mm, yeah, so powerful. And you might have already answered this question, but how do you root into the self? So definitely through walking the land and prayer and meditation. And I think, um, I mean, I pray and meditate every day. I, I, I drop, it's not something like often people say, how do you do it? Do you have a practice? And I don't have a specific practice because I'm dropping in and out of it all day. Mm. Um, and the people who know me well and love me just know because my eyes change and I'm gone, I'm in another dimension. <laughs> um, but private pilgrimage is absolutely a core practice for me. So I know that I'm here to teach and guide and help heal and empower, but I think by far the most important thing I'm here to do is to be on private pilgrimage, working energetically with the land, with the earth grids, with spirit and source and the guides and all the deities in the earth. Um, and that's really how I deeply ground and root in, not just to earth and to the mysteries, but to my soul's purpose here in this earth walk. That's when I feel truly and completely connected and alive and grounded and rooted. Beautiful, beautiful. Is there anything else that you want to add to this magical conversation before we close? 
Oh, I just want to thank you so much, Lisa. You've held such a beautiful container. And thank you for your reflections and your deep embodied wisdom that's been so evident in the way that you've held this and responded. And yeah, it's just been a deep, deep blessing to be here. So thank you so much. Been really honored um, to share this space with you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for being on the on the podcast and it'll be in the show notes where everybody can reach out to you and experience the magic of Avalon. And I cannot wait until I step back on the lands. So definitely calling that in. So thank you so much. Holding that vision for you. And I'll really look forward to seeing you here. Yes, that would be magic. Thank you so much for joining me for an episode of the Phoenix rising podcast. Please like share download, subscribe if you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next week for another episode on the Phoenix Rising podcast. Sending so much love.